Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we are the church scattered. You know where each and every one of us is right now. You've numbered the hairs on our head. You know our thoughts. You know everything. You know exactly when uh, all of this uh, social distancing is going to be a thing of the past. You are an amazing God. And today, even as we are not together, we ask you to help us worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, Father, perhaps you would use this season of a lack of togetherness to teach us that worship is really not simply what we do when we're gathered, but it is all of the Christian life, the entirety of the Christian life lived in submission to you. And so, Lord, we know that we are always your subjects when we are together and when we are apart. Remind us of that. Teach us that. And today, this great day when we especially remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would sharpen our minds as we attend to your word. Over the course of the next few minutes, prepare us with this message to be great worshipers of you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here we are uh, once again. Uh, the only difference is this is uh, Easter Sunday. It's, it's Resurrection Day, as it's been rightly referred to uh, this morning. And uh, as I just prayed, we are here to, to think uh, together and yet not together about the Lord and about his work and even about uh, his resurrection and return. And so I'm glad, so glad that you're watching right now, wherever you are. Recently, I have seen people sharing what they hope to do when the quarantine ends. They bring up things that we typically take for granted, at least uh, here in America, going to the movies, uh, enjoying dinner out. Uh, right now, even shopping at Target seems pretty exciting. Of course, when I talk to church family, I'm really encouraged by how the church family is looking forward to gathering together again, to being part of the fellowship that we grew so accustomed to, the kind of uh, togetherness that we certainly took for granted. A live streaming is great. A FaceTime is great. Zoom is wonderful. But uh, all of these things are no substitute for being in the same room together, gathered together, uh, singing God's praises together, uh, hugging and loving one another together. Uh, these uh, technological innovations are no substitute for that. But I want to draw your attention this morning to a different longing, certainly different than those uh, little things like going to the movies or eating out, but different even than the longing that we have to, to gather together in the same room. This Easter morning, this Resurrection Day, there should be a hope. There should be an anticipation that is even stronger than anything that I've just mentioned. There should be a longing so sharp that it hurts the way you feel when you've gone without food for several hours. It should be a longing that is so real so solid that it actually shapes your life the way a, a tin mold shapes a cake. It's the longing expressed in the prayer recorded in Revelation 22, 21, a prayer that simply says, come, Lord Jesus. This is the prayer of the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who ran with Peter to the empty tomb. John lived a long life. John saw the church born. John saw the church persecuted. John was in exile on the island of Patmos when he prayed that prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation may be one of the most debated books in the entire Bible, but it's also one of the sweetest, there can be no doubt from the book of Revelation that Jesus is victorious, that in Christ, we too are more than conquerors. The King of Kings cannot be stopped. He 
will not be stopped. There can be no doubt that there is a new heavens and a new earth that is coming where Christ is and where Christ will be and where everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will enjoy fellowship with Christ forever. This new heavens and new earth is a real city, a city that will come down to earth when Jesus returns a second time. We have been singing about this already this morning. And so John prays in anticipation of that great day. He prays a very simple prayer, one of the very few prayers directed at the second person of the Trinity, come, Lord Jesus. Ever since the COVID-19 virus began to smack us in the face, we've been thinking about revival. Revival, that seems perhaps like such a funny thing to think about when hospital beds are filling up and the economy is slowing down. But we worship a sovereign God and he is an all-powerful, an all-powerful God. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will. He's in control. God is not the author of evil. He takes no pleasure in evil, in sickness, or in death. But you can be sure of this. God has the coronavirus on a leash. And so like a, a dog that is barking, uh, warning you that an intruder is outside your door, this virus is here barking, uh, warning us, calling us to wake up from our spiritual slumber, to revive us, to renew us. And when revival comes, as the Lord uses even this virus to bring revival to his people, to awaken his church, when revival comes, we will be freshly aware, overwhelmed by the amazing mercy and compassion and grace that we find in Christ and in Christ alone. That's what I want uh, for you. That's what I want for my family. That's what I want for me personally. And that's what I want for our church, for this local church. Now, we don't simply want to wait for revival to come like bumps on a log. We want to pursue it like children hunting for their Easter baskets. We pursue revival by examining our own spiritual houses and asking the question, where do I need to grow? That's led us to pray for good, that we might do good to everyone, especially to those in the household of faith. It's led us to pray for, for boldness, that we might be very open with the gospel that God has so graciously given to us. But today, it leads us to pray perhaps the, the most important prayer of all. It leads us to pray for Christ. If you're a Christian, there is a room in your spiritual house with the words of Revelation 22, 21, emblazoned over the threshold, come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer of longing. It's a prayer that we are to make as we pursue revival. Now, before we can long for the coming of Christ, we need to remember the, the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is, is like a hinge on which the door of Christianity is, is swinging. The resurrection is, is necessary. It's, it's essential to the Christian life. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. And not everyone, certainly not everyone believes that. We know that to be true. But not everyone even understands the centrality of the resurrection to the, the Christian life. So many years ago, Dina and I, my wife and I were living in Washington, D.C. when my dad visited from across the country. He visited to spend uh, some time with us. Uh, my dad is not a believer. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home with Christian family. And my family was certainly taken aback when, as a young man, I put my faith in Jesus Christ well, as we went out to dinner, I remember uh, we went out to Chinese food one night and the conversation turned to the gospel. And Dean and I were trying to explain uh, why it is that we are Christians. 
And my dad, like most of my family, uh, tried to explain it on sociology and psychology. Uh, they expected that there was some kind of longing for community that Christianity satisfied for us, or perhaps a longing for inner peace that the gospel gave. And certainly there's a, there's a grain of truth in both of those explanations. The gospel is, is wonderful in the church family that it brings. The gospel is glorious in the peace that it brings. But my wife and I had to explain that night over orange chicken and white rice that really that doesn't explain how we became Christians. We became Christians because of the resurrection. Because we believed not in sociology or in psychology, but we believed in history. That one Sunday morning, that tomb really was empty. And that tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. Our, our conversion, our testimony in that sense is rooted in history. And I'll never forget at the end of that dinner when my dad blurted out, ah, I see the resurrection is really important. He didn't come to believe it was true, but he knew how crucial it is to the Christian life. Well, coming to saving faith then isn't primarily an emotional issue, though what you feel matters. And it's not even primarily an ethical issue, though certainly how you live matters. God cares how you live. Coming to saving faith is a historical issue. It's the fruit of what happened one Sunday morning outside the city wall of Jerusalem. David Rowe read about it just a few minutes ago. John chapter 19 ends with Jesus's burial in a tomb bought by Joseph of Arimathea. On Friday night, after Jesus died on the cross, they took his body to a tomb. On Saturday, all work ceased, for it was a Sabbath. But early Sunday morning, women went to the tomb to finish preparing the body. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, but she does not see the body of Jesus because the body of Jesus is not there. She doesn't know what to think. She assumes that someone came and stole Jesus's dead body. She reports the news to Peter and to John. Well, Peter and John wonder if something else has happened. They run to the tomb like two sprinters competing in a race. Well, John won the race. He got to the tomb first, but Peter was the first to enter. And then John went in. And in John chapter 20, verse 8, we read that after John went in and saw that the body was not there, the text says he saw and believed. John saw and he believed. He saw the body gone and he believed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He believed that Jesus had risen just as he promised. Now, now John, of course, is the author of this gospel, the, the gospel of John, the, the fourth account of Jesus's life and ministry and death and resurrection that we find in the Bible. And, and here he is publicly admitting that he did not believe Jesus's own words that he would rise from the dead until he saw the body gone. Jesus repeatedly during his ministry taught that he must suffer and after three days rise from the dead. But John didn't believe those words. It was a hard pill to swallow. John didn't believe until he saw the empty tomb. It's interesting that later, really just a few verses later in John chapter 20, verse 29, when speaking to Doubting Thomas and the rest of the disciples, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen, who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the boat we're in. None of us can go back and be there that Sunday morning and find the empty tomb. None of us have seen the, the risen Jesus, not with our eyes. But Jesus said very clearly, Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Peter and John aren't the only ones who claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, which 
Brad referenced a few minutes ago, Paul reports how after the resurrection, Jesus appeared not to a few, not even to a few dozen, but to a few hundred. The risen, the resurrected Jesus appeared to a few hundred. Listen exactly to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now those last words, most of whom are still alive, were an invitation to the skeptic, the skeptic living in the first century. And in Paul's day, anyone who doubted the truth of the resurrection needed only to pick up the phone, so to speak, and and talk to one of the eyewitnesses. Many were still alive. Perhaps hundreds of them still lived, each one willing to testify to the reality of the resurrection, the reality that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is alive. He, He died on the cross, yes, but he did not stay dead. Well, you know that for many, many people today, Believing Christianity can be hard. Most of us were taught in school to believe only what can be verified by a science experiment. Many of us were taught that Christianity is simply a myth devised by men to comfort the weak. That's the basic line often repeated by those who are skeptical about Christianity even today. My question for the skeptic is a simple one. How do you explain the faith of so many reliable men and women who seemingly had nothing to gain but everything to lose, including their own lives, by professing and by preaching that Jesus Christ is, in fact, alive? They maintained their faith to the death in the Jesus, the resurrected Savior. Isn't that the best explanation of what they did and why they spoke? C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia begins with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, I love that book. Uh, Lucy there is the first one to discover the land of Narnia. The entrance to that strange and magical land was hidden in the the back of an old dusty wooden wardrobe in an abandoned room in the house in the country owned by her uncle. Well, when she returns from Narnia through that same wardrobe and tells her brothers and sisters, well, none of them believe her. They all think she's making this up. How could Narnia be true? But in a strange uh, sequence of events, her brother Edmund also goes with her and finds this land of Narnia and he sees the the wintry forest and he meets even the white witch. But when Edmund and Lucy come back, well, Lucy thinks she's going to have a brother who's going to back up her story. But instead, Edmund tells the other siblings that it was all just make-believe and Lucy is only pretending that Narnia is real. Well, Lucy gets hysterical. She bursts into tears. Her older siblings, Peter and Susan, decide that they don't know what to do, so they go to their uncle for help. And what he says surprises them. He asks them, of the two, Lucy and Edmund, which one is the most reliable? Now, of course, that was a very easy answer for them to give. Lucy, by far, was the most reliable of their younger siblings. And after hearing them recount Lucy's story, the old wise uncle says this, there are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. 
Well, the way that uncle viewed Lucy is how we should view the authors of the New Testament, authors like Peter and like John. They don't appear to be writing fiction. They sound reliable. Uh, we know that they gave their lives for the gospel that they preached, the message of a crucified and a risen Savior. Therefore, it is best for this and honestly so many other reasons to believe that they are telling the truth. And the truth is very, very good news. Jesus isn't dead. He is alive. And that means you can trust him in every possible way. You can trust him to take the punishment that you deserve for your sins. You can trust him to bear the wrath of God that you deserve for your rebellion. You can trust him to clear you of your guilt, to wash you of your sin, and to make you into a child of God. Christianity hinges on the resurrection. Now, before I go any further, I have a question for you. I'd love you to pause and listen carefully to a very simple and straightforward question. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And do you believe not merely that Jesus died on the cross, but that he rose from the dead? I pray you do. There is no good news without this empty tomb. It's the best news ever. And if this, is, if this is what you believe, but you've never made this faith public, you've never let others know, you've never gone forth and, and really told the world that, that you are a Christian, well, if you've never done that, I invite you to reach out to me and to, to let me know. Maybe you have questions about what it looks like to live as a Christian. Maybe your plan is to get to the other end of the coronavirus and really and truly for the first time in your life live as a Christian. Well, if that's you, I invite you to go to the website and to reach out to me to, to let me know. And I'd love to get back to you and talk to you more about this amazing news and about what it means for your life. But there is much more that we need to know. It doesn't end there. Yes, the resurrection is the hinge on which the door of Christianity swings, but there is more to say. What happens when you walk through that door? Jesus didn't merely say he would rise from the dead. He said he would come back and usher in a new and a glorious age. He, he said it, and the authors of the New Testament repeat it. They said, Jesus is coming back. John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus told his disciples that one day he will return and take them to be with him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus said that he would return in the same way that he ascended after his resurrection to be with his father. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul said that Jesus will return from heaven and transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies like his. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says we are awaiting. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I could take you to even more passages that speak about the coming of Christ and the glorious future that awaits you if you put your faith in him, Jesus will come back and he will bring heaven with him, what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. Now, believe it or not, most people actually believe that heaven is real. A few years ago, Lisa Miller of Newsweek ran uh, an article where she said that 80% of Americans believe in heaven, 80%. I find it interesting that so many Americans do in fact believe in something that they cannot prove. It's like we're hardwired to believe that this world is not the end of the story. But even though they believe in heaven, what they believe about heaven is unhitched from anything the Bible actually teaches. Their view of heaven is thin, 
like a, a bowl of oatmeal that's had too much water added to it. Ask most people what they think heaven is like, and they'll say it's a, a place that you go if you've done your best, a, a place for those whose good deeds somehow manage to outweigh their bad. It's the idea captured by that recent television series, The Good Place. Uh, heaven, they say, is a, a place where the, the good people go. Well, there's a problem with this view. Uh, nowhere does the Bible present heaven as a place for good people. Heaven is a place for sinners. But here's the difference. Heaven is a place for sinners who have been ransomed and redeemed and transformed by the blood of the Lamb of God. We don't get to heaven on the back of our good works. We get to heaven on the back of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Listen to the words of the worship of Jesus Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For you were slain, Jesus, and you ransomed people from everywhere. There is only one entrance into heaven, and it is by way of ransom. You have to be ransomed. That means you have to be purchased out of your sin. And there is only one currency precious enough to purchase your salvation. And that currency is the blood of Christ himself. Jesus isn't coming back to collect the righteous. No one is righteous. He's coming back for the ransomed. Jesus is coming back for the redeemed. Heaven is for the redeemed. We'll ask most people what heaven is like, and they'll say it's a place where we leave our, our earthly bodies behind. But even that's not true. Our ultimate state is not one of spirit, but one of flesh. Don't think of heaven as a place where you will float in the air like a bodiless ghost. When Jesus returns, every soul will be reunited with every corpse. We will exist for all eternity in the flesh. I don't know all the details. I don't know how this is all going to work, but I know that one day I will have a resurrected body a glorified body, a real body. My lowly body will be replaced. The new heavens and the new earth is physical. It is tangible. It's a place of mountains and of land. It's a place of running and of dancing. It's a place of seeing and smelling and, and tasting and touching and feasting. Heaven is physical. So get out of your minds any silly visions of glassy-eyed cherubs with harps floating aimlessly on clouds. No, what a boring thought that is, to exist like that for all of eternity. The new heavens and the new earth is a rough and tumble adventure for the sons and daughters of God. And who knows, I may be even able to really play basketball there. Ask, what, ask most people today what heaven is like, and they will say that it is a place without pain. They'll even bring up Bible passages like Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, all that is true. But it is so much more than that. If that's, if that's all you say, you're missing the point. The tears and the mourning and the pain are gone because sin is nowhere to be found. For the first time ever in heaven, you will see the world the way God sees the world. You will perfectly prize his holiness. You will perfectly love what God loves and perfectly hate what God hates. For the first time in your life, every temptation to sin will be removed. It will be gone. You will be holy, not simply declared righteous, but you will be righteous through and through. Heaven is without sin. So, we should be careful not to quote Revelation 21, verse 4, without at least remembering 
Revelation 21, verse 17, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. When Jesus comes back, we won't simply receive glorified bodies. We won't simply be declared righteous. We will be righteous. We'll be holy all the way, absolutely, without fault, without sin. You know, one of the reasons the the plague spread in the Middle Ages is because people didn't bathe regularly. Regularly is a stretch. They hardly bathed at all. Occasionally, they'd wash their hands and their faces, but even that, not so often. Each day, we come into contact with bacteria that can harm us. I'm told a gram of dirt can hold up to 10 billion bacterial cells, and some of them want to harm us. And that's why we wash. But imagine never needing to bathe again. Now listen to those words about heaven. One more time from Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. John isn't talking about dirt, but he is talking about sin. It just can't get in. It won't get in. Heaven is a place of perfect purity. Heaven is without sin. Ask most people what heaven is like today, and perhaps more than anything, they'll describe it as a family reunion, a place where we are reunited with our loved ones. My family enjoys the movie Mary Poppins Returns, but its view of heaven has nothing to do with, well, heaven. Mary Poppins drinks deeply from the well of sentimentalism. Listen to these words from her song, The Place Where Lost Things Go. Do you ever dream or reminisce, wondering where to find what you truly miss? Well, maybe all those things that you love so are waiting in the place where the lost things go. Well, it sounds very nice with Emily Blunt's beautiful voice, but it's just not true. Mary Poppins makes no mention of judgment, of accountability, of our responsibility to a holy God. She doesn't talk about Jesus coming back as the judge of the living and the dead. And so, yes, it's tempting to think of heaven as a place where you'll be reunited with all the people, all the things that you you love, but but it's not true. Yes, there will be a reunion in heaven, but only the ransomed will be reunited. Only those who have been redeemed by Christ will be reunited, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thought. We all have Christian friends and family that we want to see forever. But if even the thought of that family reunion excites you most about heaven, you haven't yet caught on to what makes heaven so wonderful. The most exciting thing about heaven isn't the presence of those you love. It's the presence of God. A few minutes ago, I mentioned John 14, 3. Listen to what Jesus says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, I will take you to myself, and where I am, you will be also. He doesn't say he's going to take you to be with grandma, though that may be true. He doesn't say he's going to take you to be with your kids, though that may be true. He doesn't say he's going to take you to be with with your parents, though that may be true. He says that he's going to take you, Christian, to be with him. What makes heaven so glorious is Jesus Christ. As you think about death, as you think about heaven, as you think about the new heavens and the new earth, you need to be thinking about Jesus, about being with Jesus. Jesus, about knowing and about loving and about worshiping Jesus. Do you remember 
Last week when we talked about Moses' shining face, his face shining with the glory of God, the people couldn't even look at the glory of God reflecting off of Moses' face. It was just too glorious and too holy for their unholy selves to gaze at continually. Well, in heaven, we are going to see Christ face to face. In Revelation, and, and, and what a face it is. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the face of Jesus is described this way. And, and think about Moses and the, the glory of God sort of radiating from Moses' face. Listen to what John writes about Jesus' face. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Can you imagine being able to stare right into the sun? In heaven, Jesus will shine more brightly than anything you've ever seen, and you, Christian, will be so pure and so holy and so righteous that you will actually be able to stare into the eyes of God with physical, glorified eyeballs, and you won't be burned up. You'll be whole. You'll have physical eyes able to look at God the Son incarnate. So, if you can envision a heaven without Christ, well, your vision of heaven is a lot more like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood than the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to John's words in Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the city, this is the city of God. This is the city that is the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb, and Jesus is the Lamb. Heaven is glorious because Jesus is there. Well, I know that there are a lot of kids watching right now. I'd like to talk to you for a moment. Uh, when Parents, you can listen in as well, but I'm talking to the kids right now. When I was little, my mom and I went to the store, and she was shopping. And when my mom went shopping, it would feel like she was shopping forever. And I would get bored very bored. And one day as we were out shopping, or really she was out shopping and I was waiting, I stopped paying attention to her. And before I knew it, I couldn't find her. And I looked and I looked and she was nowhere to be seen. And I was really worried. Uh, I was worried that, that maybe she forgot about me. Maybe she forgot she took me to the store. Maybe she left the building without me and she wasn't going to come back or maybe she wouldn't be able to find me. And it was probably only about five minutes, but honestly, it felt like five hours. But little did I know that during that time, my mom was looking for me and eventually she found me. And I still remember how relieved I was to run into her arms and to know that I was safe. Well, I don't know if you've ever been lost like that or have had the joy of running into the arms of your mom or your dad, the joy of feeling safe the way I felt when I was found. At moments like that, it seems like there's nothing more important than our parents. And this is how you should view heaven. I know you love your toys and you love your games and you love your friends and I certainly hope you love your family, but there is something more important than anything and anyone you have. John calls him the Lamb of God because he was the sacrifice who died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And in Revelation, John doesn't only describe him as the Lamb, but he describes him as the Lamp. 
because Jesus is and he always will be the light of the world. And so, kids and adults, do you see why John prayed at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus? The story of the Bible doesn't end with the resurrection. Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, all of God's people will be in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so let me summarize so far what I've said about heaven. Heaven is a place for the ransomed. Right? Not for people who have simply done their best. Right? None of us does our best. We all fall short. Heaven is a place for the ransomed those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Heaven is physical. Heaven is a place where, where we will have physical bodies, where our, our lowly or earthly bodies, which are racked with pain and susceptible to bacteria and viruses, well, heaven is a place where our, our lowly bodies will be replaced by a glorious body. Again, I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be earthy. There will be handshakes and there will be hugs and there will be no viruses to keep us apart. Heaven is physical. Heaven is without sin. There will be no rebellion in heaven. Uh, there will be no animosity toward God in heaven. There will be no conflict in heaven. And that's why heaven is a place without pain and without tears and without even regret because in heaven we will perfectly love what God loves and we will perfectly hate what God hates. Heaven is for the ransomed. It's a place where our bodies will be. It's a place without sin. And what makes heaven glorious is Jesus Christ. Yes, it will be wonderful to be reunited with our, our Christian brothers and sisters. And it's a grievous and difficult thing to think about the reality of hell, an eternity of existence without God and without love. There's nothing more tormenting nor punishing than that truth. But Christ is at the heart of heaven. The Lamb is the lamp. He is the light of the city of God. And every Christian who is truly a Christian longs for that day when Jesus Christ will come back, as he said in John 14, and take us to be with him. Jesus is the one that we should long for the most. Now, all of this, everything that I've just said sounds very good. Uh, it sounds very good at every Sunday morning. It sounds especially good on, on Easter Sunday morning. Certainly it's good every day. But what if you are struggling to long for Jesus like that? What if your longing for the Lord is sort of being eclipsed by your longing to get out of your house or, or even by, by other good longings, like your longing to, to gather with other saints? you know that you should want to be with Jesus forever. You know intellectually that you should want Jesus to come back even now. You know that you should pray like John, come, Lord Jesus. But some of you would be happy if Jesus took his time. You'd rather he wait a little while until you get your first job, maybe until you marry, until you have kids, until you hold a grandkid, until you finally take that great trip. I'm reminded of Augustine's prayer, a prayer that he made actually before he was a Christian. Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. Many of us struggle because we know we should long for Jesus to come back, but our heart doesn't beat with that longing the way we think it should. So what can you do if you don't long for the resurrected Jesus that way? So I'll end this morning with, with two answers. There are many, many, many answers to that question. I'm going to end with just two. And here's the first one. What can you do if you're not longing for
for Jesus' return the way you should, well, you can, you can value this world less. You can value this world less. I am not happy the coronavirus has come barking. But as I said at the start, uh, I believe all things work together according to the counsel of God's will. God is in control. He is sovereign. He has that virus on a leash, and he can use it for good. How? Well, God uses trials to take the shine off of this world. He reminds us that this world is not as great as we may think. In affliction, he proves that this world is less attractive than Satan wants us to believe. When trials come, we get an important reminder that this world is not our home. As the virus is making it abundantly clear, we live in a fallen world. When I realized just how bad this pandemic might get, I bought a couple of books. Uh, one on the Black Death of the 1340s, the other on the Spanish flu of 1918. And both of them are chilling reminders of just how painful life can be. So there was a man by the name of Giovanni Villani, and he was in his 70s in Florence, Italy, when the, the plague traveled through the city. And he, he wrote sort of a, a chronicle of the advance of the plague in his city. And he described it as, as a fire speeding through the city as if it was eating up oil. Eventually, the fire reached Giovanni. And the last line of his chronicle, the last line of his diary is an unfinished sentence. He started the sentence this way, and the plague lasted until, and it appears he was ready to finish that sentence to describe when the fire of the plague had finally burned out, but he wasn't able to finish it. And he died with his diary incomplete. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. One day you're healthy, the next day you're on a ventilator. One day you're running a, a, a thriving small business, the next day your employees are looking for work. Life is like that. Unfulfilled desires and painful moments mark every day, and some days more than others. According to the book uh, about 1918, John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, Philadelphia was one of the hardest hit cities when the flu of 1918 arrived in America. It took just three days for every hospital bed in Philadelphia's 31 hospitals to be filled. On October 1st of that year, 117 people died, and that, that number would increase sixfold until more people died in Philadelphia from influenza on one day than people would die on average over the course of an entire week from every other cause of death combined. There are seasons in history where life seems a lot more like a tragedy than it does a comedy. There are moments in history when pain is a lot more common than pleasure. Well, can you imagine how the Christians in Florence and the Christians in Philadelphia must have prayed? I can. Come, Lord Jesus. Come now, Lord Jesus. When they saw how cruel the world could be, they longed for the coming of their Savior. And every so often, in ways like this, God reminds us that this world is not our home. For all of its blessings, for all of its advances, this world is fatally flawed. We are, as Pastor Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote, we are travelers, just travelers through a world that is not our final destination. Peter calls us exiles, same, same thing. Our true home is with Christ. And when we believe this, we value this world less. That's how we long for Christ, by valuing this world less. Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way. He wrote, consider what your condition is. You are pilgrims and strangers. 
So do not think to satisfy yourself here. Let us not be troubled when we see that other men have great wealth, but we have not. Why? We are going away to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years, in comparison to eternity, it is not as much as a night. It is as though you were traveling and had come to an inn. It's though you were traveling and had come to an inn. And friends, not the Hilton, right? Not, not the Marriott. We're talking Motel 6. You're a traveler in an inn. And so we ought to pray, come, Lord Jesus. How can you long for Jesus? Value this world less. But there's another answer to the question that I want to give. And it is, I think, the most important answer. Second, you can value Christ more. When you come to see that Christ is more valuable, more precious, more glorious than everything, then you'll want more than anything for him to come again. Right? That's what we sung a bit earlier, wasn't it? When we sang together, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul, my God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. Okay, those are songs, those are words that we sing. Those are lyrics that we, we sing. Are, is that the song of our heart? Right? If we're going to long for Christ's return, he has to be our treasure. Well, we've got we've to value him more than anything or anyone else. And that isn't always in this fallen world easy. Let me explain why. We used to get spare change every day. I used to get change every day because when I'd go out and buy things, I would, I would, I would buy things with cash, with dollar bills and $5 bills and $10 bills and so on. And that was a very normal way to purchase things. And as a result, uh, when I'd give the cashier uh, a bill, I would receive change. And, you know, if I was doing a lot of shopping in one day, I might end up with a lot of spare change, quarters and dimes and nickels and pennies. And that loose change could really add up. Uh, I'd bring it home. Uh, I'd have a, a big jar that I would just deposit my spare change in. And then eventually when that jar filled up, I knew it added up to quite a bit of money. So I might take it to the bank and uh, the bank teller would count it all up and then give me cash back, which was great. And then up until at least very recently, you could take your jar of change to the grocery store. And that's a lot of fun because you can dump out a jar filled with quarters and dimes and pennies into the machine and watch as the machine counts all your spare change, gives you a receipt that you can take to the, the checkout line and you can get cash back. A great Invention. It's great to have a machine when you have a lot of coins. Well, I want you to imagine, if you would, a coin machine with a very strange problem. Let's say you, you put in a hundred pennies, right? That's a dollar. But the coin machine tells you that those hundred pennies are worth fifty dollars. Well, that's not right. You kind of scratch your head, but that sounds pretty great. A machine that treats a penny as much more than it's worth. But let's say on another day you come to the same machine and you put in a hundred quarters. Well, that would be $25. But let's say that the machine says those 25 quarters are worth just $10. Well, that's a problem. The, the coin machine is overvaluing pennies and undervaluing quarters. It says what is unworthy, a penny, is worthy. It says what's worthy, a quarter, is unworthy. Well, I bring that up simply to say, I think you and I are a lot like that broken machine. We just have a way of going through life overvaluing what is less important. So, when we're little, our toys mean so much to us, too much in fact. Uh, when we get older, for so many of us, our, our jobs just mean so much to us. Uh, 
Too much, in fact. Maybe we get a little bit older and our, our family just means so much to us. Too much, in fact. All of these things are of some value, just as pennies. They're of some value. But let's look at it the other way. We have a way of going through life undervaluing that which is most important. We take Jesus for granted. We turn to him when we're in trouble, when times are tough. We try to fit him and his body, the church, into the corners of our lives. But sadly, very few would look at us and conclude that we value Jesus more than anything. We take him for granted. Like that broken machine, we undervalue him. He's worth much more than anything. He's worth more than anyone. But we always treat him, I don't know, like he's wearing a bronze medal instead of the gold. The machinery of our heart needs to be reset so we value Christ the way that we should. Let me, let me tell you the, the fear that I take to the Lord during our time apart. I don't want to take anything away from the value of you hearing this message being delivered to you through, you know, the internet. I think that's great. But the way God designed the church is that when God's people gather, there's something about God's spirit knitting all of us together at the same time so that we get retuned. The broken machine sort of gets, get, gets fixed, if only for a little while, so that, ah, yes, we remember not to value this so much and to value Christ above everything. And we're helped. God designed it, right, so that every week we come together on the Lord's Day and do that. Well, I trust the Lord and his sovereignty and his goodness that you can go to the word on your own, that you can watch the live stream on your own or as a family, and that God's spirit can be at work as the church is scattered. But here's what we're missing. God's plan to lead us to treasure Christ above all else is what we cannot do right now. I think we'll be able to do it soon, but until then, now more than ever, be pleading with the Lord to help you value him whom you should value above all things. Because the machinery of our hearts needs to be reset every week, every day, so that we value Christ the way we should. So this Easter morning, let's be like Mary, who took expensive perfume and anointed Jesus's feet, washing it with her own hair. Why? because Jesus was her treasure. This morning, let's be like that man who found treasure hidden in a field and joyfully sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. Why? Because Jesus was his treasure. This morning, let's be like Peter and John who didn't just run to the empty tomb, they raced to the empty tomb. They sprinted, why? Because Jesus was their treasure. Listen again to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is risen, and he is worthy. And now on this Easter Sunday, when we cannot meet, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. So if you would, let's spend just a few moments now in silence. I know that's hard where you are, given what's going on, but let's try to spend a few moments now in silence, confessing the ways we've tended to value the wrong things and praying, come, Lord Jesus. Dear gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, if we're going to be honest with you as we always ought to be, we would confess that uh, our ability to value Christ above all seems to be constantly under attack. 
especially when there's things that are really good for us, like our jobs and our families, our, our comfort and our, our, our very welfare. Lord, we know how important those things are and we desire them and desire them and they make our lives easier and we're thankful for them. But Lord, none of them is you and none of them is what we finally need. And we make, we make idols out of them when we love them more than we love you. And so on this Easter morning, as we remember Jesus Christ, not simply crucified, but resurrected, and not merely resurrected, but ascended and coming again, we pray that you would fix the machinery of our heart to help us long for you and love you more than life itself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.